believe that leadership isn't a position or a role, it's an action and a choice. I believe that leadership can be learned. I believe that great leaders emerge from adversity. I believe that Happy Valley is full of great leaders. These are their stories. Welcome to the Penn State Leaders Podcast. Today we've got Eugene McFeely. So Eugene, welcome to the hey, Penn State you. Leaders Podcast. It's great to have you. Uh, so tell us a little bit about you, what your role is at Penn State, and how you got to Penn State. Sure. So I'll start with, um, I'm a Penn Stater. So I graduated here in 1989, um, was uh, part of the Air Force ROTC program, and uh, served uh, 27 years in the United States Air Force. And one, my final assignment here was actually to come back to Penn State to teach and to uh, run the Air Force ROTC detachment. And um, while I was kind of finishing out my assignment here, an opportunity came available at the university. And my current role, I'm the Senior Director of Veterans Affairs and Services at Penn State. And um, my job is to be the ombudsman for the military and veteran community at Penn State and to collaborate and uh, coordinate efforts that we have um, with respect to programming and servicing for our military and veteran students. That's great. And, and our, our backgrounds are pretty similar, just to, to let people know. So you, about the time that you graduated, I was coming to Penn State as an ROTC yep. cadet, and uh, I spent 14 years in the Air Force. So, and, and like you came back to, to the alma mater. So yeah, some, some good parallels there. So Eugene, as you think about your leadership journey, tell me a little bit about the people who influenced you the most and kind of made you into the leader that you are today. Yeah, sure. So um, for me, leadership is a human endeavor. So um, there's a lot of different facets, I think, that go into it. And what it comes down to is it really starts at home. It starts as a child because, you know, foundationally um, to be able to, to kind of, you know, look at leadership, it's about yourself. You have to master yourself and lead yourself before you can lead others. Um, and that journey starts at home. It starts with your family and your parents teaching you um, values and ethics, um, and then the character traits that you kind of build from that. Uh, and then as you grow and as you're kind of watching others around you lead, um, you're kind of, that's, you're a student at that point. You're learning about leadership all the way through your entire life. And um, so, you know, foundationally, my parents started me on that journey. And then throughout my time, um, you know, up until this point, it's really those that I've either worked for as a follower that I've learned leadership from, um, and then opportunities that were afforded to me during that time that kind of shaped. So there's no, there's not really one particular person that I can point to, but what I'd say is there's a whole team of folks that have helped me along um, through my leadership journey and through life, and it starts at home, and, and, it, and it goes on. And you know, one thing I will say about leadership, and, and, and maybe sometimes it seems counterintuitive, but you can learn to be a good leader just as much from observing a bad leader as you can a good leader at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen that and I've heard that from others, uh, even on this podcast, to talk about learning from, from all types of leaders. Um, was there anything that, as you were growing up, that you began to because it's one thing to watch people and imitate them, but it's another to think about from a leadership perspective. I mean, do you remember when you started thinking of yourself as a leader and you were watching people for how they led versus just kind of how they were as, as human beings? 
Yeah, and I, I think that really a transi- big transition happened for me um, really in college um, and kind of the situations that I was put into. So obviously going through ROTC, it's, it's very leadership focused in the program. You know, that's the primary goal of the program is to build uh, young leaders. Um, but, you know, it's really, you know, when you're put in a position, it's actually before you're even put into a position of responsibility, right? So you can be an informal leader and have just as much influence on a situation, what's going on. So it's really, you know, I, I think for me, it became a time when I became involved with something that was bigger than myself and that I started to um, have a vested interest in a common goal or an organization that I was part of that kind of um, really, you know, started that flick of the switch, if you will, from kind of a passive observer to someone who's, you know, jumping in and actively trying to help influence the situation so that um, we can achieve a goal or, or work towards a mission um, or, or affect change uh, in an organization. So, you know, it's, it's part of being part of student groups and, and part of other um, groups of folks that you're trying to get stuff done that, that really, that started. And, um, and it started in an informal capacity, right? So, you know, you as a team player, you're trying to help the team um, succeed and, and kind of stepping in where, you know, where it was needed, maybe not where people were necessarily looking for me to step in, but kind of stepping in at those key times to kind of help the leader um, achieve the team goal was, you know, kind of the first piece of that process. And then, you know, of course, as you start doing things like that, as you start being that informal leader, it's noticed within the organization or within the team. And then you're asked to, to step in formally in different capacities to kind of work towards that. And, um, you know, and, and a key piece of that too, and, you know, leadership, and I think, you know, I'm sure uh, previous um, uh, folks that on the po- podcast probably mentioned this, mentorship is extremely important, right? And so, it's someone that's in the organization or in the team that jumps in and it says, hey, this young fellow has or this young lady has potential and kind of puts you in situations um, where you're where you have to lead and then help start to grow you as a leader. So it's really, you know, it's being part of something bigger than yourself and wanting to make sure that 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 initiative succeeds. That really kind of is the point where you flick the switch from a casual observer to to the active participant in the leadership game, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, I think about, you know, in Air Force RTC, they have this concept of a leadership laboratory. Like one of your classes is a lab, right? And, and so you think about a leadership lab, like I have a chem lab and I have a physics lab, but what is a leadership lab? But it's doing exactly what you talk about. It's taking people who are maybe have never been put in a formal leadership role, putting you in that environment, in a structured environment to deal with those situations and get feedback um, so people who maybe were informal leaders or we see some, some talent there and we want to bring them forward in a kind of safe environment. And that's, that's kind of what that whole ROTC program is about and the whole idea of a leadership laboratory. Yeah, and, and the brilliance of it is it's um, because it's a lab. It's no harm, no foul, right? So, right. you know, step out of your comfort zone, try something different and, you know, see where it takes you. Yeah. Do it when there aren't lives on the line, because someday there may exactly. be. Exactly. Right? Yep, exactly. So, Eugene, as you think about your, your background, were there any times of adversity in your life or your career that influenced the leader that you became? 
Yeah, I, I would say that uh, is an absolute <laughs> adversity has been part of everything I've done in a lot of different ways, just due to the nature of the, the business that I was in, in the Air Force and, and what we're doing. But um, I, I think that, you know, really, um, for me, when faced with adverse situations um, in the leadership realm, what it really kind of speaks to me, um, you know, for those situations is that you fall back on your core set of values, your core set of ethics, and your your essentially your your character um, at those times, right? So um, I think that you know what it, what it kind of highlighted to me is that why the foundation is so important in the leadership game um, is that in times of adversity and in times of challenges where there's a lot on the line. It's that character, it's that value set, it's that ethic set and those um, morale, uh, morals that really drive sometimes how you react. It's at what your core. And when you are put in a situation where things are very dynamic um, and things are very chaotic, um, that's, that's really what you're going to go back to. So as leaders, um, you know, it's very important. And sometimes we kind of focus on a lot of different things when we're teaching leadership, but I think you know, the character, the values, um, the ethics, and all those things are so important because at the end of the day, when the tough decisions are on the line, um, that's what's going to guide you. That's going to be your compass to, to make, you know, good decisions um, at the end of the day. And I think the other thing, too, um, when facing adversity, it's very important uh, as a leader to um, have a group of not only mentors where you can potentially turn to those individuals in those times to kind of discuss your thought process and, and where you're, you're going to, you know, kind of um, go with respect to your leadership decisions. But it's also very important to listen to, uh, you know, the folks that you're leading, right? So you need to be open-minded. You need to be able to take input um, and kind of process that and, you know, determine what's the best way to move forward, right? So, you know, in adversity and crisis, it's not the time to shut down. It's not the time to stop listening and, and just move out. It's probably the time to start listening a little more and then be able to then transition to make those big decisions during those timeframes. So really it comes back to core and keeping an open mind um, when you're leading in those situations. Yeah. Uh, that's that's great advice about listening more in time of crisis. Uh, so yeah, true. Because, yeah, because it's counterintuitive. Because I mean, you're because usually in the crisis, time is of the essence. So, you know, you're 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 concerned that you don't have the time to listen, but you actually do if you really think about it. Can you think of any specific examples from your career of of adversity and kind of how you led through that? Yeah, so um, there's a couple. There's a few. Um, one's personnel oriented, and the other kind of vignette is actually an operational type thing when I was in the military. But, uh, you know, I think that what you'll find, or at least for me, the most challenging um, things leadership wise were personnel issues, right? Um, and we had a situation in an organization where we had an individual who was um, very popular among. Um, their peers, but yet they were very cancerous for the organization. And what I'm getting at is that they weren't aligned with the unit's objectives and kind of started a, a very bad um, vibe or, or a, you know, a situation in the unit and kind of how do you work around dealing with that? And, 
you know, it was a it was a pretty good leadership challenge. And to put it all in the context too, we were also in combat at the time, so you know, there's a lot going on. So, um, kind of navigating that piece um, took a lot of finesse, and you know, took a lot of um, kind of skill to figure out how to work that to remove that individual from the situation, to so we could focus on what was important at the time, which was the mission because lives were on the line um, and kind of working through it. And I think the big thing there was kind of to build a co-op of individuals that you can um, uh, rely on within your organization to kind of silence the, the, the negative impact of the one individual. And then once you kind of get everyone refocused on the important things, the mission, the things that we need to concentrate on now, then remove that individual from the organization and put them aside. And, you know, it's unfortunate. I think that, you know, almost any organization, you're going to maybe have someone who's not aligned with the mission. And, you know, as a leader, as you try to align them, if, if they will not align with what needs to be done for the good of the organization, there's a certain time that you have to, you know, now cut that individual off from the organization. And that is never an easy thing to do. You know, because it could be, it could result in things like firings or career impacts or things like that. But as long as you give the individual the opportunity to move forward with the organization in the direction the organization needs to go, um, give them that opportunity. And if they don't take that opportunity, you need to make the tough calls. And, and that's what it comes down to. Um, and then the other piece was that, um, at, you know, one of my deployments, we were in a situation where um, the base took fire and we uh, ended up having the base on fire and uh, most of our structures were wooden. So um, that came down to, you know, we had a significant crisis um, and trying to figure out how to kind of maximize our resources. And I think the leadership lesson that came out of that was, um, was not only the listen piece, but you know, look at all of your resources and, um, you know, as far as the problems that you're facing. And, and, and this is stuff that's really out of the box sometimes that, you know, is not intuitive. And, and the situation that we were faced with is that uh, in Afghanistan, we had a limited water supply. So if you have a fire and you're trying to put out that fire of water, uh, there may be a time that you run out of water. And, um, you know, that's the situation we were faced with. And so, it's just listening to your team of experts um, and letting them do their jobs without micromanaging. And then when the out-of-the-box solution comes up, such as, hey, we've got these huge sewage storage tanks over here. Why don't we pump those empty and use that to douse the fire? You know, that's the route we went. So out-of-the-box thinking, trusting your experts, and um, kind of managing the situation. So, Yeah. Those are two really good stories. I the first one, the thing that came to mind as I listened was the importance of informal leadership, right? And so here's someone not in the chain of command who's having influence over the whole organization, right? And yeah. that in influence can be for good or bad, um, right? We, we talk about leadership always in a positive way, but there's been plenty of leaders who have used their abilities to influence others in a very negative way, right? So yeah. um, I think that's that's a good lesson in that. And then I I, I love the second story about listening to your people, creative solutions, trusting them, having that communication. To your point, it's counterintuitive. I think especially in the military, there's people maybe from the outside who think, oh, well, the leader makes decisions and, and they give orders and things happen and everyone just follows along. And, and no, it, to your point, it's a leadership's a human endeavor. 
military is a, a human organization and, and all the things that apply um, to humans uh, apply everywhere. People want to be heard. They want to have input. They have expertise. They don't want to be micromanaged. Um, and you come up with better solutions uh, that way. So great, great stories. Yeah. So Eugene, as you think about, you know, you, you've done a lot of teaching of leadership, right? Being, uh, you know, here at Penn State and leading the ROTC organization. If, if people wanted to tap into some of your knowledge about leadership, how do you keep up in leadership? You know, leadership is kind of an ongoing journey of, of learning books you would recommend or podcasts or activities or what kind of things would you, do you do or you, would you recommend to people who want to dive more into leadership? Yeah, I think, um, you know, really it's a, it's, it can be a multi-pronged uh, approach to kind of staying fresh as a leader. Um, I would say the two most important things that rise to the surface for me are, you know, the mentorship piece and, you know, reading um, there's, there's all kinds of ways you can go out there. And, you know, if you kind of do a, a search of leadership, you'll find that most of the leadership writing is done by psychologists of all things, right? It's a human endeavor. So psychology has a huge part in this. So, you know, you can get outside of your zone and kind of read some of those type of articles out there. And there's a lot of scholar, scholarly work on that. But um, kind of where I, I kind of read is I read about other leaders out there. So, um, you know, um, one book that I've read that, you know, kind of resonated with me as a military individual was Once an Eagle by Anton Meyer. Um, and it kind of talks about two different leaders, a charismatic leader who, um, you know, is kind of has a strong moral compass. And then the leader who is maybe not such a strong moral compass and, you know, is more about advancement and things like that. And I find, um, you know, from the leadership perspective on reading, I rather read about um, individuals who have been through different situations and done it rather than a cookbook of, hey, this is leadership 101. Um, so you really, you know, you get the experientialized version of leadership and that's kind of where I focus it. And, Kind of what's sitting on my nightstand now, and I've got a crack open is um, Call Sign Chaos. It's um, um, about uh, General Mattis. Um, and I also have a book that a friend uh, gave me about George Marshall, who was a phenomenal leader, General George Marshall. So, um, you know, I would recommend that maybe take, you know, grabbing some of that stuff to read. And then the other piece too is the mentor piece, right? So if, you, if you're a leader and don't have a mentor, find a mentor. Um, it could, you know, and a mentor can either be a peer, it can be a, a um, someone who's in your leadership um, channels as far as a supervisor, or, you know, sometimes it can be a follower if it's someone that you have that kind of relationship with. But I would recommend that, you know, grab a mentor and someone that you can talk about with. And, and, it's, and it's talking about, hey, you know, this is the situation I faced the other day. And these are the kind of things that, you know, I was thinking about and this is the direction I went. What do you think? And then you can kind of bounce that off of someone else to get a different perspective of, of maybe some decisions you made as a leader and, and the direction you want, and maybe get some insight into different ways that other people might have handled the situation. And, you know, I, you know, teaching, um, you know, when I was teaching leadership um, on a daily basis, I, I used to talk a lot about being a leader is a lot like being a chameleon. Because, you know, there's a lot of different things at play. It's very complex. It's art and science. Um, and you have to adjust. You have to adjust. So you have 
the leader, you have the followers, you have the situation, all those have to overlap to intersect for the mission. And then you've got the environment surrounding everything else. And, you know, while you as an individual may have a specific leadership style that resonates with you and that you prefer, um, that might not connect with the situation that might not connect with the individuals you're leading. So you might have to change it up. And, you know, the example I'll throw out is your leadership style when you're out with a group of coworkers about where to go for lunch is going to be very different from your leadership style, you know, when you're trying to implement a new program that's maybe not popular in your organization. So you have to have a huge toolkit of leadership tools, um, which you can kind of reach into that toolkit and use for situations as they present themselves. Or if you see your leadership, current leadership style is not resonating with people you're leading and you need to figure out something else to get the mission done, you kind of need that broad spectrum. And you're going to get that from reading and talking to other people and mentors about how they handle situations. Yeah. Yeah, I I like your your analogy of the toolbox. And I think one of the things the military does well is get people, you know, we change jobs frequently, right? That's one of the things that uh, we get used to in the military. And then some people look at the outside, that seems strange, right? You're in a job a year and two years and you're changing already. And how, how do you have impact? But to your point, it's that toolkit, right? It's all those different situations that you encounter in all those different organizations and jobs and environments that builds up that toolkit as we prepare a leader from, you know, brand new second lieutenant to move into, you know, potentially, you know, the whole system is built to build senior leaders who have that broad that toolbox that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, the other thing that, that came to mind as you talked about mentorship is how hard it is as a leader to detach yourself from the situation you're in and to kind of see it objectively. You're, you're in the middle of it. And so um, I think whether whether you can do that as an individual or you bring someone else in to do that for you, you got to find a way to do that. Mm-hmm. Some people have that ability to kind of detach and reflect even in real time to do that. Um, there's one podcast I listened to, uh, Jocko Willink, who's a Navy SEAL, and he talks about just being able to take a, a foot, a step back one foot from an from a operational situation and all of a sudden getting some perspective on it. And that's kind of the yeah. analogy that he uses what a difference that makes and just taking that step back. I remember I was working with uh, one of my employees and, and he would consistently run meetings and, and be running the meeting. I said, you know, when you're running the meeting, you lose the ability to observe the meeting. Why don't you give some of your subordinates the ability to run the meeting, let them take turns. That's good experience for them. And now all of a sudden you're immediately detached from the meeting and you're going to see things in that meeting that you've never seen before. And it turned out to be really effective. And, I was able to figure that out because I was watching him run the meeting, right? So I was a little bit detached from being in that meeting and said, hey, I think this can benefit you. So um, so that, that's what came to mind for me as you talked about mentorship is it's, it's a way to get that detachment from the situation. And to your point, from experienced leaders who are, who are seeing it for you. Yeah, and, that, and that's huge. And, you know, just kind of a point that you brought up too, uh, Dave, is that, you know, one of your, one, in my opinion, one of your big roles as a leader is to create future leaders, you know, no matter where you're at, you don't have to be in the military, it can be in any organization. So, I mean, I think that the point that you brought up is this, the secondary benefit of having your subordinate lead the meeting instead of you um, as the person who always does it is you're now helping that person and mentoring that person and growing them as a leader to kind of fill that role, right? I mean, I think our jobs as leaders is to make ourselves expendable from the standpoint of that we grow and groom 
um, those that we're working with to, you know, exceed us, you know, and that, that's kind of what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. So um, just to kind of wrap up any, do you have any web or social media presence? If someone want to learn a little more about you or. I do not. <laughs> and my, my, my boys give me a hard time about that. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm kind of a little bit under the radar with respect to that, Dave, and I probably need to, um, you know, maybe change that up a little bit. <laughs> well, you're in good company. I think just about everyone that I've talked to so far has given a similar answer. So I'm, I'm guessing it may be a bit of a generational thing, but I, I'll keep asking the question because I know eventually I'll get to some leaders who, who have jumped into that. Um, yeah. But Eugene McFeely, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for um, your service to the nation and to Penn State. Yeah, thanks, Dave. And, and same to you. I mean, I appreciate it and appreciate the opportunity to have the discussion. So Eugene, one, one of the things that, that I run into being a former military person working in higher education, and inevitably this will come up in, in every interview uh, for someone who's coming out of the military and moving into a civilian environment is, boy, it seems like the military is really different than in our case, higher education. Can you talk a little bit about some of the similarities and differences that you see between the leadership within the military environment versus higher education? Sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, a big difference between the military side and higher ed um, comes down to kind of the structures a little bit. And um, from from the perspective of what I've observed in, in higher ed is that there's a much greater um, want and need for consensus a lot of the times when it comes down to some of the decisions that are being made. And and really, I think at the end of the day, the big difference there is just the time factor. So, you know, in the service, you know, in the military, sometimes we don't have the luxury of time and to get the level of consensus that, um, that you know, higher ed often seeks and gets uh, is not possible with the situations that we run into. Um, and the, the other piece too, is that I would say that the university, you know, kind of is a more flat organization compared to the service. We're very hierarchical as far as structure and, um, you know, and that, that drives a lot of different things within the leadership realm at the end of the day. But, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, the basics are always still there, right? You know, the leaders that we encounter in the military and higher ed still have some kind of foundational base for their character, values, and ethics, um, and, you know, are making decisions with people in mind. And, you know, that's kind of how it works. And I think really, you know, when it comes down to it, is probably the big difference is the organizational structure and the time that we have to execute what we're doing, um, and and that kind of drives the difference. And I think that you know, it was kind of an unusual situation, you know, kind of stepping in that from the military, um, uh, but one that was easily adaptable because now you're getting more voices to bear light on what the issue or problem is. So. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen that. Although, you know, it's, there's a part of that getting people aligned that has to happen in the military, because as human beings, even if we're trained to follow orders, there's a natural, maybe resistance to something that happens, even if I don't articulate it to my boss, I've kind of got it internally that I'm not sure I understand why we're doing this. And so, you know, I, I think one of the things that I think I've learned is that, you know, that, that, taking time to explain why 
is just a human thing that even in the military, even if you say, hey, we're going to do this and everyone says, yep, boss, got it. We're going to do this. Probably still worth explaining why that's going to help you in the, in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, sometimes part of the challenge in the military is that the why is classified at levels where we can't articulate it, but it's yeah. still important for a leader um, to build trust with the organization to, and at least acknowledge the fact and go, look, I can't tell you exactly why, but you have to trust in the fact that what we're doing is important and will get us to our end goal and help us accomplish the mission. And and acknowledging that because you're right dave the why is so important right and there's actually a book written about it the why um and 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 really that's that's part of the alignment the motivation and kind of um helping people get to where we need to go because you know if people know the why that's where creativity comes in because that might not be you know within your construct as a leader you might not have thought about some of these other ways to get to the to the to the end state that you're trying to do. But if you give them the why, man, that brings out all kinds of creativity and alignment within the organization. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think about your story that you told earlier about the fire. And to your point, if if you're not, if people don't understand the why, they're not going to come up with that creative solution of throwing sewage on top of a fire and conserving water, right? Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about, so, so you work um, with veterans coming to Penn State. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience is like and, and how Penn State is helping veterans make that transition from you know, military status into becoming a full-time student? Sure. You know, and so our, our military students and in particular our veterans are uh, adult learners. So they're older than the, the general population of, of what we serve here at Penn State. And you know, there is a big transition that happens for um, veterans as they're departing the service and coming into higher ed, and, and it's for a lot of different reasons. Um, our service members have typically been out of school for a long time, so it's been a long time since they've had high school level calculus, and now they're stepping in a situation where, you know, um, they need that calculus skill set, right? And that could have been something that they did two to six years ago. Um, so there's the challenge from that perspective. And then there's also the challenge that they're leaving a uh, typically, you know, in the military, their units, which are very tight knit uh, organizations. Um, you know, really the, the unit um, gives the, the person their support structure, their rank within that unit kind of tells them where they're at in the hierarchy of things. Um, and all the units have very specific missions um, and that gives them their purpose at the end of the day. So that when you come to something like uh, the university or higher ed or Penn State, um, those constructs are not there. It, it, it is, uh, Penn State is like the smorgasbord. So it's, um, it's all about the experience. Um, there is no necessarily right way to go through, you know, the university uh, and where you fit in everything. It's, it's where you find your place. So sometimes kind of making those adjustments where you've had those things kind of defined and were known into a situation now where it's a wide open aperture um, can be daunting for some folks and, you know, need a little assistance to kind of make that transition, you know, as they're leaving that tight knit structure to something that's more wide open and, and uh, very diverse in nature, um, you know, how do you make those transitions? And then that coupled with the academic 
uh, piece, and then that also coupled with the with the where they're at in their lives. So uh, some some of our students are married, some of our students have kids, some of our students have other responsibilities um, as they're stepping out of the military and now moving into higher ed. So um, you know they're they're worried about a lot of other things. Um, in addition to taking that, you know, 16 to 18 credit course load and having calculus and all those other things. So it's really about helping, um, um, making them aware that there are resources to help them as they're transition, transitioning. And also that if there's things that we haven't thought of to kind of help with that transition, uh, have somewhere where they can turn to voice their concerns so that we can, you know, then see what we can do to help them make the transition. Um, so, you know, there's, there are challenges for folks, um, you know, along the lines of other things, you know, not all, you know, a, a kind of a stereotype or misconception is that, you know, all veterans are broken in some way or shape or form. That's not true. Um, but there are some veterans that do carry baggage as a result of their service, whether that's, um, you know, a traumatic brain injury, uh, PTSD, um, you know, military sexual trauma. There's a lot of different things that can happen during the uh, course of one service. That again, you know, where there may be a need um, for some additional help or services, right? And so that's why we here at Penn State are here to kind of help with that. Um, every campus has an office where we have veteran liaisons and folks to help with that transition. Um, and then if we don't have um, resources in house, that we do know where we can find resources because there's a lot of resources at the state, federal, and actually also at the nonprofit level where we can get help for our veterans and kind of making the linkages there. So it's all about helping these young you know, men and women who have you know, you know, put their life on pause to serve, um, you know, make the transition because you know, they have a lot to offer. They have a lot of service left in them and we wanna see them succeed as they're coming to Penn State. So any barriers we can kind of help remove um, you know, is, is kind of what we, we focus on. It's wonderful. Can, you know, Penn State's got a long history of supporting its veterans, um, you know, sending, sending students off to, to wars, to welcoming, you know, the post-World War II generation. And, and now today, the, the generation of uh, the global war on terror, as they come in, can you talk a little bit about what's unique about what Penn State has that, that frankly you have built um, give you a little opportunity to brag about about what kind of makes Penn State unique about how it supports its veterans. Yeah, and I think what it comes down to, Dave, is uh, level of commitment. And you know, you'll see a lot out there about military friendly, military friendly ratings, and things like that. And and when we here at Penn State don't focus on ratings; we focus on culture. So anything that we can do um, to make our um, culture and environment here at the university more welcoming and more accommodating to military and, and um, student veterans is, is what we focus on at the end of the day. Um, that could be, that starts from everything from looking at the policies that we have here at Penn State um, that affect students. So, you know, Penn State, we have, a Pennsylvania is, I think either, uh, I think it's the fourth, the third or fourth largest National Guard in the United States. So we have guards, men and women that are on our campuses, not only as faculty and staff, and, but as students. So how do we help those uh, folks succeed when they get a short notice deployment order that they're gonna be going to Afghanistan for a year and they only found out you know, a few weeks ago. So 
So, you know, what are our policies for allowing a student to either military withdraw or to maybe drop a portion of their classes in order to, and, you know, and to continue their studies um, while deployed. So it's kind of looking at those policies and, you know, putting policies in place that help facilitate these students um, on their educational journey. So it's, it's, it's working through things like that. Um, also, it's all about, um, you know, the programming and services that we provide on campus. So I talked a little bit about, you know, kind of making those linkages between services for the uh, students and, um, you know, what we can do to help them. So it's about providing um, folks that kind of help them with that connection. Um, we help also with the, the GI Bill uh, at all of, this, of, of all our schools and any other military benefit that pays or helps uh, subsidize or pay for tuition. We make sure that we have processes in place um, so those students can take advantage of those benefits. And then at the end of the day, we do a lot of other things. So we um, here at University Park, we have a student sponsor program where um, all inbound students who are veterans get a call from a student veteran saying, hey, welcome to Penn State. And, you know, here's the good places to live. Here's the things to do. Don't buy all your books before you go to the first class because the professor might change what's on the syllabus. You know, all that kind of good gouge that's out there to kind of um, help with the transition. So we have um, kind of innovative programming like that that we put in place. Um, and, you know, things that we're looking towards in the future, um, you know, we're here at the University Park campus in our Student Veteran Center, which we just opened uh, just a little over a year and a half ago. Um, we're going to have a facility dog in here. So um, what that's all about is that it's, um, you know, a, a tool that we're going to use to kind of break down some of the um, feeling of separation or distance between uh, our student veterans and um, people who are counseling here in the office. So it's a way to break the ice. It's a way to kind of build bonds um, around something like this. And it's innovative. You know, it's, it's not every school has a facility dog, but it's, it's a really cool way to kind of um, achieve some of the things that we're trying to do here. And we're also looking at programming um, to help our student veterans start their transition before they even show up at Penn State. And what that is, is uh, um, we're in the process of kind of looking at and building a summer bridge program where you know now we can, if someone knows that they want to come to Penn State or you know transition into college, that we can maybe start getting some of the transition out of the way, maybe offer some of that um, jumpstart on calculus or college level writing or whatever it happens to be before they even show up on campus, so that when they do come to campus, they've got that out of the way already. So there's just a lot of different things that you know we're always kind of. Um, looking around at our peer institutions to see what they're doing and if there's something that we feel that um, that would be really you know great and helpful to our students we kind of uh, adopt that and if not we look at other kind of cutting edge or innovative programming to um, see what we can do to better help and facilitate transition to college for our military members. Yeah that's great I, I've you know, seeing some of those programs got the opportunity to participate a little bit. So impressive. Uh, and the, and the people, the veterans are so impressive themselves, um, yeah. helping them out. You know, one of the things you mentioned early on was the level of commitment at Penn state. And one thing I noticed is starting at president Barron's level, his, his dedication to supporting our veterans is serious, right? Both in what he says and, and more importantly, what he does and what he funds. 
Yeah, Dr. Barron, I would say, is the lead veteran advocate on campus, even though that's my job. <laughs> um, it, Dr. Barron, no doubt, has been um, phenomenal in supporting the military and veteran community and um, making sure that we're taking care of, 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 of those who have served. And, and that's it. That's it's all about the culture. And, you know, one of the things that we do do as well that, uh, you know, folks may not be aware of is that uh, we have um, a military appreciation week that we put on usually um, closely aligned to Veterans Day each year, but as part of that, we have a series of events that are a week long from guest speakers and different things, and then it usually culminates in um, a military appreciation football game where um, we have a program called Kids for Service Members, where we give out um, you know somewhere in the order of magnitude of 7,000 free tickets to currently serving veterans, Gold Star families, um, and the military's families. And, it's a great opportunity for, for them to come and, and watch a game. And um, we also put on a, um, a tailgate at the Bryce Jordan Center prior to the game that's usually postured to serve up to 10,000 people. So, um, you know, again, it's just the level of commitment that this institution puts forward and in, in, in because we see the importance of um, supporting this community of folks who have served, um, you know, not, not because we owe them anything, it's because they're an important part and a very, um, a very valuable resource to our country and that we need to kind of help, you know, where we can with that, right? It's about empowering those individuals to continue to serve in a different capacity now. And um, I can tell you that is, you know, while I was deployed to Afghanistan, my family, before I even came back to Penn State, had the opportunity to come up here for a football game for military appreciation. And it was great. I mean, what a great break for families to take their mind off of being separated for a loved one for one day. Um, and, you know, that that is that is really huge to military families and greatly appreciated. And, you know, I'm very grateful that I was able to my family was benefited from that. And I'm very grateful that I'm now able to kind of continue to help with that endeavor um, in my new capacity here in the university. Yeah. You know the uh, the ties to Penn State, as you know, run very very deep, right? Yeah. And and to and so do ties to the military, multi generational, um, you know, and people who are really proud of their service, like they're proud to be a Penn Stater. So it's so cool to bring those two together, to yeah. those, those two kind of passions. Um, so one one last question, and um, uh, you've worked with the 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 latest generation right from from your time in the military to ROTC and now seeing veterans um, come in and obviously there's a lot that's the same from from year to year from from generation to generation but where are you seeing some differences and and I'm not asking this question to to knock the youngest generation that not my intent behind the question at all because some people if you ask that they're, they're thinking I'm, I'm you're asking them to criticize the the younger generation and it's not my thought at all but what's different for them what's different in what they they have experienced and, and what they're how they've grown up and that, that you feel is is unique about the current generation yeah I, I think um I think really the younger generation if I was to put my finger on on a single thing that is I would say vastly different is they're more free thinkers um and what I'm getting at is that um you know I think that my generation, um, we grew up in a more structured environment from the standpoint of how we were raised and, and expectations of society and, and things of that nature. And, you know, that, you know, over time has changed where the aperture on that has blown wide open. And there's a lot of focus um, 
you know, on the individual nowadays um, than there was in the past. You know, in the past, I think we were raised with, you know, it's more important for the collective and in supporting the collective. And, you know, from the perspective of the younger generation, I mean, there's both good and bad that comes with that, right? Because, um, you know, part of the challenge is now we have to, you know, have folks understand that they need to set aside themselves as an individual for the greater good of an organization or a greater cause that we're working towards. So to give up a little bit of that individualization, right? And that that kind of maybe looking more um, um, internally um, for their own needs to, you know, the needs of a greater group. But at the same note, it, it is really kind of um, opened it up where we've got a lot of folks that are thinking outside of the box in a lot of different ways um, a lot of exciting ways. And I'll tell you one thing too, I think um, this younger group of folks are very passionate about different causes. And, you know, you see it here on campus with Thon and different things like that. And, and kind of with um, a lot of the um, social justice efforts that are going on, that there's a lot of very passionate students that are pushing the envelope in a lot of different ways to affect change. And, and that's not bad, that's not bad at all. Um, and I think it's it's part of it, um, you know, is to harness that for the for the greater good in a lot of different ways. And that's kind of, you know, where I see the biggest change um, right now for our, our younger generation is arising. But, uh, you know, I was just, uh, you know, talking to some friends that I went through ROTC this weekend with. And, um, you know, I think the comment around the table was, man, if, if, if we were competing against these kids that are coming up through, um, you know, the program today, we probably wouldn't have made the cut, <laughs> you know, because there's a lot of young, smart folks out there um, that, you know, have a maybe a broader view of a lot of different things um, and are more open to a lot of different thought than maybe what the older generation was. And I think that that's not necessarily a bad thing. But, you know, at the same note, um, you know, there's that part about, you know, hey, we need to focus maybe a little bit on less on individual needs and to be thinking a little bit more about the larger picture here, which sometimes can be a challenge. Yeah, that's great. And I, I think to your point, there's every generation or sets of generations have certain characteristics to them. And, and the challenge for leaders is understand them and then fill in some of those gaps or, or bridge some of those gaps where it, something maybe has been missed or less emphasized in a particular generation. And so I think that's, that's a great way to approach it all of that. Yeah. And from the leadership perspective, Dave, you know, just to kind of feed off of what you said, it's, it's about utilizing your resources, right? So, you know, you as a leader need to kind of understand that there is a cultural shift or a change, or there's, you know, different uh, talents that the um, younger uh, group of folks that are part of your organization are bringing in. So how do you leverage that to, you know, accelerate your organization and to help it succeed, right? And it's, it's all about figuring out how to best use those resources uh, at the end of the day, um, as well as kind of help the, the, those young folks understand your organizational culture and how you would like them to kind of, you know, interact with that organization at the end of the day. Absolutely. Well, again, Eugene McFeely, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank yeah. you for joining us on the Penn State Leaders Podcast. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I appreciate the opportunity and take care and have a good day. Thank you for listening to the Happy Valley Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Give us a review and share us with others. 
You can follow us on Twitter at HV Leader Podcast and on YouTube at Happy Valley Leaders Podcast. Remember, leadership is an action and a choice. So go be a leader.